Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List. This is the awkward, uncomfortable intro. Is it awkward? It's not really. I'm uncomfortable, but hopefully you're not. Some people complain that it's too long. Some people complain that it's too short. Maybe they critique. Maybe I shouldn't say complain. I'm putting a negative spin on it. Anyways, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. If you're watching on video, I apologize for the extreme close-up and my bedhead, although my hair looks pretty perfect. If you're not watching on video, perhaps hit pause, go to YouTube, subscribe to my channel, and watch, because my hair is on point, as the kids say. I hope you're doing well, everybody. Um, are you vaccinated? Some people are vaccinated. That's exciting, right? I think we're heading to the end of this thing, maybe. The worst feels over, doesn't it? Europe's having some problems, I guess, but whatever. We're here right now in this moment. You are okay, unless you're dying. But even if you're dying, you're not dead right now in this moment. You're okay, and someday you will be dead. But right now you're not, and that is cause for celebration. That's what I say. I appreciate you tuning in. Um, if you're listening on a podcast app, Go give it a review, five-star review or a thumbs up, whatever people do. I don't know. And if you're on YouTube, give it a thumbs up, leave a nice comment, subscribe, share, tell some friends about the show. I think things have really been picking up and today is no different. we got a special guest I'm so excited about, Dr. Judson Brewer, MD, PhD. Hmm? I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty serious. Um, a friend of mine, Corey Allen, who should check out his podcast. He's a past guest on this astral hustle, I think is the name of it. He's wonderful. He hooked me up with, um, Dr. Brewer, who I had heard originally on the waking up app with Sam Harris, which I frequently talk about as well as the 10% happier podcast, which with Dan Harris, no relation. We all remember that scuffle with Catherine Price. Check out that episode if you missed it. Um, this episode touches on some similar things. Anyways, Dr. Brewer, I heard him on both those podcasts, which are great. I recommend all of these things. I recommend um, Waking Up App with Sam Harris. I recommend 10% Happier podcast and app with Dan Harris. And I recommend this new book, Unwinding Anxiety by Dr. Brewer, which they were nice enough to send me. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. We talk all about it. He has another book called The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. It's been published in 15 languages. He also has a hugely viral video, uh, 2016 TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Habit. It's been viewed over 16 million times. He's trained Olympic athletes and coaches, government ministers, and business leaders. He's a... Um, addiction psychiatrist, neuroscientist, director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, as well as an associate professor, professor at both the School of Public Health and the medical school at Brown. That's Ivy League, folks. He's no joke. Um, and he was awesome. He came on the show and had uh, a ton of great info. They sent me this book. As you'll hear, I'm only about I don't know, a third of the way through, and it's been enormously helpful. I can't recommend the book enough, Unwinding Anxiety. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. It, um, it was awesome. I just enjoyed the hell out of it. I wish it was two hours long. 
Um, there is an embarrassing moment for me where I completely misunderstood something from the book, which is cringy. Maybe want to shoot myself right in the tits, but um, he was so kind and understanding. But I got some reading. Sometimes I have to read the same page four times in a row and I miss words. I get, I have no shortage of problems, folks. I think I have undiagnosed uh, dyslexia or a slight dyslexia, something. I don't know. I mix up words in my head, misunderstand things sometimes. I'm not smart, but I do enjoy a good conversation, particularly about anxiety, mental health. So I think you'll enjoy this one. And I also happen to be a stand-up comedian who's going back to work. I am at Side Splitters in Tampa this weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then uh, I may even be there Sunday, Monday. There's going to be some special guests. So check that out. And back in Royersford, Pennsylvania, March 24th, uh, with past guests, Sarah Talamash and Isabel Hagen. And there might be a special guest on that show too. Royersford, Pennsylvania, March 24th. And big one for me, May 15th, Austin, Paramount Theater. Going to try to do a theater. And um, it's going to be fun. Part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. So come to that. Long Island, March 28th with Mark Norman. Bunch of dates. I'll get them up on my website. ASAP. ASMR. Um, and go to the YouTube and subscribe. Got a new podcast, Joe and Ron on Talk Movies. That one's been doing well, blowing up a bit. And of course, as always, Tuesdays with Stories is my um, my favorite thing in the world. It's very funny and enjoyable. A little more irreverent than this one. So warning. Anyways, go check out all those things and um, enjoy this conversation with Judd Brewer. I'm going to read an excerpt. Usually I read a quote. I mean, technically, this is a quote. It's an excerpt from the book. Throughout this book, I have emphasized curiosity. I've said that curiosity is a superpower that helps us replace our old habitual behaviors with the simple behavior of curious awareness. With anything unpleasant, especially anxiety and panic, we tend to run away from it, which then becomes a learned behavior. Yet with curiosity, we can learn to turn it toward it or even lean into unpleasant things. All this curiosity can help us break free and step out of our old habit loops. There you go, folks. A little tidbit from Unwinding Anxiety. Get the book. But first, enjoy this conversation between myself and Dr. Judson Brewer. Thanks for listening. I love you. recording it's happening this is where i mean we're going to talk about anxiety and your book is unwinding anxiety but as soon as i hit record that's when it all flushes through my body of like here we go this is crazy i'm in too deep and i shouldn't be doing this i'm not a journalist i'm an idiot and this is just going to be embarrassing so that's that's my mental state as we start oh good we can talk about anxiety maybe <laughs> yeah well i mean first i mean i am an anxiety sufferer, I have general anxiety disorder and I have panic disorder, but I'm in remission with uh, panic attacks and I'm the best I've ever been with anxiety. It's all day to day, but I, I always joke, I always seem to acquire things that never really go away. You know, mm -hmm. I'd love to have an ailment that's like that lasts six weeks and then it's, it leaves your system. But anxiety seems to be one of those things that lingers. But 
I'm doing well with it. And your book, I've only, I, it was sent to me and I'm not I'm a slow reader. I think I'm on page 74, but it's already great and really a huge help. And then uh, I was like, maybe I should jump ahead. Is that what like journalists do? Should I read as much as I can in different <laughs> spots? And it said not to, it warned me not to jump ahead. So I didn't, but I'm 74 pages in and it's been really helpful. Perfect. That's good to hear. It's a good start. Um, so I don't, I have all these like notes. I don't have any question questions. I will have given you a proper intro when the people at the time the people are hearing this interview, but maybe you could just give the folks uh, a little summary of who you are, what you do, what your job is. Sure. So uh, maybe I should first uh, do my disclosures. I'm Judd. I suffer from anxiety. I've had panic attacks in residency training. Uh, and in fact, I, I get anxious when I can't help my patients <laughs> you know, with their own anxiety. So I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I you know, have a clinical practice. Uh, I'm an associate professor at Brown University where I have a lab where I study. I'm a neuroscientist and I study habit change. I, you know, the, and then the rest probably details, you know, I've done things here and there uh, that, that may or may not be helpful. Um, I'm also the executive medical director of behavioral health at ShareCare. Uh, where uh, some of the apps that, that I've developed and that my lab has been studying uh, actually make it out into the world to, to God forbid, help some people. Uh, so, which, you know, that's, I guess that's, that's who I am, at least right now. And maybe I can say a little bit more about this bit about anxiety, because I was, you know, what prompted me to write the Unwinding Anxiety book was something that I didn't know that I didn't know. <clears throat> so in medical school, I learned how to give people medications for anxiety and residency, you know, hone those skills. And it turns out that uh, the, there's this thing called number needed to treat how many patients you need to give an anxiety medication before one person shows significant benefit. And that number is 5.15. So meaning that I play the treatment medication lottery <clears throat> every time somebody walks into my office and I get a hit rate of about 20%. So not great. You know, I don't know who's going to benefit and who's not, uh, which is kind of like the slot machines, right? It's called intermittent reinforcement. <laughs> so, Oh, maybe this person will benefit. Oh, lost again. You know? Uh, so it's not to say the medications aren't helpful. I prescribe them. And for some people they are, but I was starting to get anxious about how I could actually help my patients more. And ironically, you know, back, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, the, the benzodiazepines were all the rage, right? Do you remember this Stone song, uh, Mother's Little Helper? Yeah, of course. Yeah. She goes, running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper. You know, that's benzos, right? They were singing. These, these things were prescribed like candy. Uh, these days, not so much. Uh, they're not recommended as first-line treatment. They're, they're addictive. They can have other problems. So in the 80s, people started looking for other anxiety medications, Prozac was, was developed and marketed and hailed as this, you know, this miracle, it's safe, it's, you know, all this, but the effectiveness is about, you know, if you look at this number needed to treat, it's about 20%. Uh, and that this is with this class of medications. Yet in the eighties, there was a guy studying anxiety and he suggested that anxiety could be driven just like other habits. And so when I, you know, fast forward to modern day, when I was struggling helping my own patients, I looked back at the literature as a scientist to see what I had missed. And it turns out, you know, that this anxiety habit loop thing 
could be, was very similar to what I'd been studying with helping people with other habits. So for example, we'd done a study with mindfulness training for smoking. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Uh, my lab had done a study with an app called eat right now. And these are apps that anybody can download. So we'd, we'd done this study with this eat right now app uh, led by Ashley Mason at UCSF. She got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And even my lab worked out the mechanism of how that works. So when I saw this, you know, oh, you know, we can, we can affect habits. We can affect addictions. Can we actually apply these approaches to anxiety? That's where I got really excited, both as a scientist and a clinician, because here, you know, I could study something and putting my clinical hat on, I could say, oh, you know, is this actually helpful for people? Well, so, uh, so many, uh, this happens to me all the time. There's so many things that pop into my brain uh, while you're talking that I'm like, oh, I want to ask this. I want to say this. And then I end up nowhere. I'm like, I can't think of any of them. <laughs> but so I'm somebody that I took Paxil years ago. This was back in probably 03, 04. And I was having horrible anxiety and panic attacks and went to a therapist. But for me, a huge um, relief and I don't know if this is relatable, was just going to a therapist. First of all, I have this terminal uniqueness. And I always joke, I thought I was dying of Joe List disease. That was, I didn't realize anyone had had a panic attack before and anxiety and all this stuff. And just going to see a therapist and her saying, oh, yeah, it sounds like you got general anxiety disorder. You're having panic, you have panic disorder. That relieved a huge part of it, at least for the moment, knowing that because it took away that fear of like, I have some crazy thing no one's ever heard of and she ended up subscribing Paxil is that but that's not a benzo or is it uh, Paxil is an SSRI it's not a benzo yeah, right it's, but it's one of these classes of medications like Prozac okay and what and Xanax what's that because she gave me Xanax if I was having a panic attack benzo okay that's what I, that's what I thought but that was for a, a Xanax is sort of like if you're having a panic attack take this and it'll calm you and Paxil is sort of a this will put you at a base level is that about right yeah ish yes so you, you can think of benzodiazepines as they work on the same receptor as alcohol so it's like taking a a really rapid shot of alcohol <laughs> right okay i mean i used to take both at once that's that's bad right i mean i'm also an alcoholic in recovery about eight or so years and i would do a running gag where it would say don't take with alcohol and i would take my my paxil with a shot of like jägermeister and be like that's a fun party trick right so the, the Paxil and the SSRIs are less dangerous than taking benzos with alcohol. But if somebody takes benzos with alcohol, that is not a good gig uh, because they work on the same receptor and it can be really dangerous. Well, so, that makes me to see your life and well. Yeah, that makes me grateful. Um, but and, and sorry, now I'm just asking just drug questions and Vicodin. That's like a totally different thing. That's just a painkiller, right? That's that nothing, is a painkiller. Right. Because I did my fair share of Vicodin with alcohol as well, which I assume no one would recommend. Um, but I, don't, I would not that, recommend. <laughs> right. So that's that's where I was at. But for anyways, the, the point being, I mean, just understanding that other people had suffered from such anxiety yeah. helped me. But eventually all those um, habits um, start to come back of anxiety and worry and panic. They start seeping back through. Um, they do. Okay. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned both of those things because, you know, one is that I rarely see a patient walk in the door and despite their best Google search, they still don't know how their mind works. <laughs> you know? Right. 
So that's the first thing I actually do with my patients. And I, I gave some uh, studies of this in my book to highlight that the first step is understanding our minds, right? If we don't know how our minds work, we can't work with our minds. So it's funny you mentioned that you have panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. I don't know if you've got to the chapter on Dave in my book yet. I think that's but- where I'm at right now. It says Dave's story part one is where I've left off. Oh, this is oh, no. <laughs> well, Dave has panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. And he was referred to me because he couldn't, you know, he didn't know how to, to help them. And the first thing I did with him was I sat down and I pulled out a piece of paper and I just wrote down trigger behavior results. And I'll tell you what those are in a minute. But we, as I was going through his history, started filling this in to see what it was that was driving his panic. Okay. So, and literally I say driving because he would get panic attacks while driving on the highway. So his triggers were that he would start to have thoughts. I think his, one of his thoughts was like, oh, I'm in a speeding bullet, right? He felt like he was going to get a car accident. Then his behavior was first that he would panic. And then later he learned, oh, he could just avoid driving on the highway. And then he could avoid having those panic attacks. So if we think of this as a habit loop, and this is how all habits form, you know, trigger behavior result and the result feeds back to the trigger if it's rewarding. So for him, the behavior of avoiding driving on the highway was rewarding because he didn't get those panic attacks. So every time he had a thought, oh, I should not drive on the highway. So we just, we, we took five minutes, we mapped this out. And it was that first step in helping him start to work with his anxiety. But the second piece you mentioned is all these things that we do aren't necessarily helpful. So I sent him home and I said, start mapping out your habit loops. I gave him, we have this app called Loading Anxiety, same name as the book. And I said, just start mapping out your habit loops. He came back two weeks later. The thing I forgot to mention was that he was also very overweight, but we hadn't even touched that yet because I was going to focus on his anxiety. First thing he said to me was, doc, I lost 14 pounds. (laughs) So what he realized was that one of his other habit loops was anxiety was triggering him to stress eat. And that stress eating wasn't actually, you know, it was giving him this temporary distraction, this brief relief, but it was feeding back and just causing him to stress eat more. And he started to realize, oh, this isn't helping my anxiety. I'm feeling guilty about eating. So he started to become disenchanted with the process. And we can talk more about that later. That's step two in the book. But this just highlights how important it is just to map out how our minds work and start to understand them so that we can start to work with them. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, like so many um, thoughts and and questions, but it's an interesting thing because there's recognizing um, the behavior, which is sort of uh, most of it feels like addictions, which is a lot of what you talk about. And that some things it feels like we're addicted to things we don't even realize we're addicted to it, like whether it's worry or checking our phone or eating or scratching our face. I mean, is that right? Because I feel like there's a million things I'll notice. I'm, I do a lot of meditating and, and obsessed with all these mindfulness apps and all these things, and they really help. But it does start to be like, oh, I, you know, scratch my nose or I blink when I'm getting anxious or um, all these other things. And there, it does sort of feel like worrying somehow feels like something. It feels yeah. like I'm doing I'm worrying about the I feel like I'm covering myself because if I worry about it, I won't get it. That feels like I'm taking action by worrying. Right. At least I'm doing something. And you're right. highlighting this key aspect of worry 
So you can, you know, this, this element of anxiety, the definition is something like this feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. If you look at, if you drill down into the worry piece, it can be a feeling, I feel worried, and it can also be a verb. I, oh, I'm worrying, or I worry about this or that. And this is what these folks in the 80s were talking about in terms of how it can drive habit loops of anxiety. So worry as a mental behavior, often people think of, you know, overeating or smoking or, you know, binging on Netflix as a behavior that can be addictive, but worry itself is a mental behavior that just as you're talking about, makes us feel like we're in control. At least I'm doing something right by worrying. So that's, that's very common and it feeds back and drives more anxiety because when we're anxious, even if we can't do something, at least we can worry. Right. Well, that's so that's I'm something of a hypochondriac as well. And I've gotten much better, but I go to therapy and, and my therapist is just a social worker. He's not a psychologist. He's not a doctor. But and he'll just have to say, no Googling, stop Googling. You can't Google. And so it is it takes a lot of willpower, but that's hard to break that habit. But one of it's an interesting cycle. Maybe you can speak a little bit about this is my anxiety. My whole life has manifested physically, which took me a long time to realize because it doesn't feel possible that my tooth is sore. It's just a, I have a general soreness in my tooth. And I've, I've told this story in this podcast before where I was having tooth pain and I was freaking out about it. I just go in this panic circle and I'm having all kinds of crazy anxiety and I can't think about anything except my tooth. And I'm Googling things that could be wrong with a tooth. And I stare at it. I use my flashlight. And I finally made a therapist appointment. This is about four years ago. By the way, I was about six months from getting married, which is the, the real root cause of all this. So I was Googling. I was just obsessed with my tooth. And I made a therapy appointment going, I'm, I'm losing my mind. And of course, I made a dental appointment. And I saw the dentist first and he said, there's, there's nothing here. I can, I go, there has to be, I'm in agony. And he's like, listen, I'm, I, there's, here's the X-ray. I'm looking at it. I'm a dentist. There's nothing wrong with your tooth. And he said, you should have had the therapy appointment first. And I kind of, we kind of laughed. And of course, when I left the tooth pain had gone away because I had a doctor say, and that, that's been a cycle throughout my whole life is I thought I had brain cancer. I thought I had, I've had every kind of cancer at some point which brings to mind, I think there's a Mark Twain quote of suffered many hardships, most of which never happened, something like that. Yeah. Maybe this, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself and maybe, I don't know if this is your expertise, but how is it possible, and this might be taking us off topic, that anxiety and worry can lead to actual physical pain. And it, is there anything to that? I'm, I'm, I'm hiding some kind of maybe childhood trauma or something, and that's why pain is manifesting. What's going on there? Yeah, I probably wouldn't start with the childhood trauma piece. Uh, so not to you know, not to uh, belittle, you know, people who had childhood trauma, that's, you know, it's serious, it's important. Yet, often, it's, we, we learn to associate things very quickly. Uh, humans are really great, you can think of them, us as associative learning machines, where, you know, there's some physical thing shows up, and then you have this thought, oh, no, maybe it's this. And then we link the two. Uh, my PhD mentor used to call this true, true and unrelated. So I could have tooth pain, I could have some worry, 
those both could be true and true, but it's not necessarily that the, the tooth pain is causing the worry. The worry might be actually associated with the tooth pain, but it's not because your, your tooth is about to fall out as, with the example that you gave. So here our brains, they'll just start associating all sorts of things without linking a causal connection. Yet those, those associations can lead to causal connections around anxiety where we have a physical feeling and then we think, oh no, and that oh no feeds back and keeps that physical feeling going. This is where I don't think we know the direct mechanisms neuroscientifically about how this works, but this mind-body connection, this interaction is real, it's huge. Uh, just as an example, in college, and I write about this at the beginning of the book, I was, um, I was struggling with GI issues. I won't go into all the, the messy details, uh, but let's just say I went to student health and the doctor said, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with you, except you know, could you be anxious or could you be nervous or stressed? And I, was, and I remember saying, no, I'm not stressed. I'm a vegetarian. I exercise every day. I play the violin. I'm, you know, blah, blah. I'm going to medical school. And he, you know, he kind of shrugs his shoulders and he's like, well, Okay, you know, kind of good luck with that if you're not even going to entertain the idea that you could be stressed out. And in fact, I was totally stressed to the gills. I had what was called irritable bowel syndrome, which is caused by stress. So here's a great example of the mind body connection. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, again, I, I want to be respectful and not get too into details too, but I have a, a story about my wife. It was actually the the day of the election in 2016 she got really sick she had some kind of i i would think e coli or something like that and i was about to take a trip to california to work i'm a comedian and and she got so sick she couldn't come on the trip and it was just a horrible ended up being in the hospital but i was convinced i must have had what he she had like some kind of norovirus thing and on the plane going to california i was sweating and having anxiety and i kept going to the bathroom and i had like the strangest bowel movement. It, it was like, it, it just looked, I, again, I don't want to get into gory details, but it looked like spit. It was like this white, nothing. It, it was just really weird. And I was on stage that night and I, I told the, the manager, I, I'm going to be sick. My wife has this thing, so I'm going to have it soon. And like 30 minutes into my set, I said, hey, I got to bail. I, I'm, I'm sick. Of course, I never got sick. She had eaten something that I didn't eat. But it was amazing that my brain, it, was, it felt so powerful that my body was actually, I was completely convinced. And I was feeling, it's like one of those things, and this happens a lot where people go, ah, it's all in your head. And you're like, but I am feeling sick. It's just starting in the head. Is that right? Yeah, it's like your head migrated, you know, and, and caused all this stuff to happen in your gut because they're connected. Right. right. Where it's not like we're some disemboweled head walking around. It's, it's it's that the mind and the body are very, very much connected. And it's like you're you're crapping stress. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So going back to um, uh, the book is so you sort of recognize your thought and um, or whatever it is, you're I, I'm, I'm stressed. And so. I think I forget the three things. So I'm going to eat. And then the reaction is, uh, the result is I'm not as stressed because I'm eating this food. Is that basically yeah. right? Or smoking a cigarette, whatever it is. Yeah. The trigger behavior and a result. Uh, and in fact, if anybody wants to do this themselves, instead of having to go to a psychiatrist and have them write out trigger behavior result on a piece of paper, I just 
put a, created a website, mapmyhabit.com that anybody can just go to and they can download a free PDF of this and start mapping out any of their habits, whether it's stress, anxiety, worry, procrastination, or, or, you know, anything. And so how does, how do we go then from there? So we start mapping mm-hmm. and then where do we go from there that it starts to, how does it work? Are we kind of reshaping our brain? Cause I keep hearing in all these meditation things that the brain is plastic and we can kind of change these habits. And, and I've managed to do it. I used to drink every day alcohol and I don't, and I, I stopped drinking Coca-Cola a couple of years ago. And some of them, I get nervous to try to even re-explore sometimes even the book is like triggering because I'm like reading about anxiety and panic. And I'm like, no, no, I've been doing so well. I don't want to go back into there. Um, So how does it sort of, how do we unwind anxiety as it were? Yeah. So the first step is just understanding how our minds work and mapping them out. And so the book talks about some of these basic mechanisms, like these survival mechanisms and how they were set up, which can help both reassure us that, oh, this is a normal process, but also help us see how, we might be taking this process in a way and trying to force it to change behaviors in a way that's not helpful. So, you know, I, I have a chapter on, you know, anti-anxiety uh, strategies that don't work because, you know, I don't know if you ever saw that, I'm sure you are familiar with Bob Newhart, the comedian, right? Certainly, yeah. So he had this great skit from the 70s uh, called Just Stop It. Did you ever see this one? If I did, I don't remember. I don't know it well. So a woman walks into the therapist's office, Bob Newhart, as the therapist, and she says, you know, basically, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. And they, you know, they go back and forth. And basically, everything she brings at him, he just leans over his desk and says, just stop it. <laughs> just stop it. Just stop it. And I won't give the end of the skit away, but it's, it's worth the five minutes of, of watching because it is pretty funny. But he's highlighting something that we've been carrying forward since antiquity where this idea that reason cannot compete the passions, including anxiety being one of those passions, you know, the emotions. And, you know, we, we have failed miserably as a species doing that, you know, look at the diet industry. I wish I could just, you know, my patient could walk in and say, doc, you know, I overeat. And I could just say, just stop it. <laughs> you know, okay. You don't have to see me again. Well, I'm smoking. Just stop it. Um, done. You know, uh, I worry a lot, just stop it. Right. So we take these willpower based approaches. Yet, if you look at how the brain works, our brains, <laughs> the willpower, the part associated with the willpower is the weakest part of the brain. And ironically, it goes offline when we get stressed or anxious. So it's, it's not reliable <laughs> if it's even, you know, if it even has any strength at all. So here, it's important to just kind of understand that we can't just think our way out of anxiety. We can't think our way out of worrying. And often when we try to think our way out of things, it actually creates more worry because it's not working. So here, understanding this process, that's that first step, mapping these pieces out. But that understanding also extends to understanding how our brains actually change behavior. And our brains change behavior based on one thing, which is how rewarding a behavior is, okay? That's the second step, is really checking to see how rewarding is this. I'll give a concrete example. Uh, My patients that come in and try to quit smoking, I don't tell them to just stop it. I actually do the opposite. I say, just smoke it, just go for it, smoke, but pay attention as you do, okay? And what they realize is that cigarettes taste like shit, right? They don't taste very good. And in one study, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment, 
with, you know, with helping people pay attention as they smoke. In a study we just finished, that my lab just finished, we found that both with smoking and overeating, if we have people pay attention as they're doing the behavior, that reward value changes, basically it changes in their brain. We can watch that reward value shift from rewarding to not rewarding to the point where they'll actually shift to behavior. So they'll stop overeating, they'll stop smoking. So here's a, and it doesn't take a lot. You're talking about neuroplasticity, this buzzword that everybody loves to write about in popular press. Well, my lab can actually study this, you know, as a neuroscientist, this is something I can actually look at. So we can study this. It takes 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they're overeating, as they're smoking to significantly change that reward value to the point where behavior shifts. Okay. So that's that next step is basically helping our brain see very clearly that this old behavior, it's not doing it for me, you know? So overeating, I just feel blah, you know? Or for example, with my patient who was stress eating, he realized, oh, stress eating doesn't fix my anxiety and it makes me feel more guilty. This guy went on to lose over a hundred pounds. Interesting. Well, so so again, uh, several things come up and it does feel like a lot of, kind of what you're saying is, acceptance in some way. I mean, so much of what we do, uh, stress and anxiety and suffering comes from trying to change something. And in reality, it feels like kind of accepting the thing is the most helpful, which is what was so helpful with me with with panic attacks was I would start to have a panic and I would feel it coming and be like, oh my God, I have to stop this. How is this? This is good. I'm not gonna be able to do this or I'm not gonna be able to perform if I have a panic attack before going on TV or on stage, or I won't be able to leave the house, which eventually kind of like we were talking about with Dave, with driving, it can lead to agoraphobia and people don't want to leave their house because of fear of a panic attack. But what helped me the most, and I think this is similar to what you're saying, is accepting it, which sounds so counterintuitive of just kind of going, okay, feel this. All right, my, I'm, I can't, I'm, my heart's racing. I'm having tingling. I've, I'm shaking. I'm starting to sweat. Um, and then kind of going, all right, that's, that's what's happening now. That's all this is. It's not, it, I, I'm going to survive it, which feels similar to quitting drinking or eating. I, I need to eat this thing. I want to eat this thing. And then you feel like I'm a piece of shit for eating this thing or for smoking. Yeah. Instead of just going, yeah, I, I smoke. And then kind of allowing yourself to feel like I, I don't like the way it makes me feel. And I had that with, with drinking. And that's, I mean, people talk about that with alcoholism or drug addiction is sort of hitting bottom is that feeling of, I need to change this because I feel like shit. It's sort of for the first time really being fully mindful of what it's doing to you. And I remember talking to my therapist about anxiety and panic and being like, I'm suffering and him saying, well, not enough to change anything. You're not suffering enough, evidently, which, you know, again, I don't want to recommend people go and do drugs until they've suffered too much or whatever it is. But I don't know if any of that made sense. I'm kind of volleying a big mess back to you. But did that sort of make any sense? It makes complete sense. And your therapist in very concrete terms is talking about reward value where he was saying, if I'm understanding what you're saying, he was saying, Hey, look, if, if it's still rewarding for you, you're going to keep doing it. Right. Right. If you look, you can even look back at the ancient Buddhist psychology. There's this, there's this phrase that's basically where the Buddha is talking about, you know, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. So he's talking about getting enlightened, which seems like a good thing. And he was talking about how he couldn't get enlightened until 
he had basically hit rock bottom with all the things that he was doing, you know? So there's the story of St. Arthur is around, you know, he's got all the worldly pleasures and that's not good enough. And then he becomes this aesthetic and, you know, he starves himself and that doesn't get him enlightened. And he realized it wasn't either of these extremes. It was really about seeing how his mind was working. So that's the piece. It sounds like your therapist was, was talking about this saying, Hey, if you're, if your brain is still enchanted with something, good luck changing it. You know, whether it's the just stop it willpower approach or anything else, it's really about zooming in and asking, you know, and I, I like this simple question, what am I getting from this? Right. Really feeling into this. What am I getting from this? And we, like you're saying, you don't have to hit rock bottom. It can be any moment that we're, we find ourselves scrolling on social media again, you know, where we can ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? Is this actually improving my quality of life? Or am I just mindlessly scrolling, like pressing a lever like a rat looking for food, you know, which is basically surprise or soothing or whatever, you know, there are a bunch of different rewards that our brains get with social media because it's designed that way to keep us scrolling. Right. Yeah. That's a fascinating thing. I had, um, I don't know if you've know or heard of Catherine Price who wrote how to break up with your phone. I know Catherine. Yes. Yeah. She's wonderful. I had her on the podcast and we had a great time talking about this stuff, but that's an interesting thing now because before, well, I guess I was going to say that's an addiction that now everybody is going to have to deal with because it's everybody now seems to have a smartphone and the smartphones are these supercomputers designed and working and, and improving to make us more addicted. And somebody said, I think it was in her book, was every time there's an update on your phone, it's because they figured out a way to make it more addictive. That's the only reason they want you to update <laughs> your phone. And so I was going to say now before addiction, people, a lot of people dealt with addiction to cigarettes or alcohol, but it wasn't 100% of the population. And maybe it's presumptuous to assume 100% of Americans are obsessed with their iPhones. It seems like that. But it sounds like people were, everyone was addicted to something anyways. It might not have been food or, or drugs or cigarettes, but yeah. worry and thinking, it feels like to some degree, everybody has dealt with some kind of addiction or isn't dealing with some kind of addiction. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because this is really about, you know, this is this most basic survival mechanism that's set up to help us find food and remember where it is so we can find it again and then find danger and remember where it is so we can avoid it in the in the future, right? To eat and not be eaten. So this process is, in, is critical for survival. We need this to learn anything. And also setting down habits is helpful, right? Imagine having to relearn everything every day from walking to putting on your clothes to talking to cooking, you'd be exhausted by the end of breakfast. So habits are helpful. The question is, where do they slip over into unhelpful? And I like the simple definition of addiction that I learned in residency, which is continued use despite adverse consequences. Right. So continued use, you know, if I continue to tie my shoes, probably helpful. If I continue to uh, actually get my fork or spoon into my mouth when I'm eating, probably helpful, right? So I don't have to relearn how to eat. You remember kids when they've got food all over their face as they're trying to find where that spoon goes, right? So learning these habits is helpful. So the question is, when does something become, you start having adverse consequences? And it's not, it's really about noticing when it has tipped over that edge, right? So social media, for example, Am I scrolling, continued scrolling despite adverse consequences? And if we can find that and start to ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? 
that updates that reward value on our brain. So instead of becoming automatons where we are just mindlessly scrolling and we are at the beck and call of our weapons of mass distraction, you know, our phones, uh, we can actually step back and say, oh, do I really want to be doing this and not force ourselves to stop using our phones or whatever, put them down because that's not sustainable, right? That willpower approach doesn't work. But we'll naturally start to find that, I call it the pleasure plateau, where you know it's like overeating. Somebody finds, I ask my, uh, my patients and people using our program, with each bite, ask yourself, is this as good as the last one, right? And right. so they can find, oh, you know, chocolate, pizza, whatever. I hit that pleasure plateau and it's much easier to stop. Yeah, it's, it is um, so tricky to deal with it. And it's so easy to go into that hole of, God, I, I want to quit my phone or, or drinking or eating, but then I could, I didn't. I started looking at my phone again. My screen time is, I'm a piece of shit. And then you go, well, I'm a piece of shit. So I might as well just keep looking. I mean, that's that weird um, loop. What is, what is the science there? I guess it's the same science is I'm thinking about I'm a piece of shit. So let me distract myself with more phone, I guess. Yeah, I'll give you an example, a concrete example of that. Uh, I wrote about a woman in, in my clinic in, in the book, uh, and what she was talking, she had binge eating disorder. So she was really struggling. She was very over, overweight. And so as we were working with that habit loop, right, negative emotions would trigger her to binge. And then she'd get, she called it, she would numb herself out. So that numbing felt better than the negative emotion. Yet she was binging on entire large pizzas, 20 out of 30 days a month. So it was a really severe thing. The other thing that as we were mapping out that habit loop, the other thing that she started to notice was that she would beat herself up and she'd feel guilty about binging. And so that, uh, so she would binge and then that would lead to a negative emotion where she would then beat herself up. And that beating herself up was a negative thing itself, which caused her to sometimes binge on top of a binge. So there's right. an extreme example, but the basic process for probably most or all of us is, you know, some, we have some thought about ourselves, we judge ourselves or we beat ourselves up. And then again, it's that feeling of control. I can't change what happened, but at least I can beat myself up. <laughs> and so that feels better than not doing anything, at least to our, our immature brains, let's say our immature minds. And it feeds back and we do it again. This often, I don't know if you can relate to this, but maybe after a show, I call this review and regret, where you think back to all of the things you could have said or whether you got enough laughs or whether you, you know, you delivered the, the line, the right, I, I'm making this up cause I'm not a comedian, but you know, did you do your job the way you had hoped it to go? And then even if you did there, your brain, it, our brains are great at looking back and finding all the little things to nitpick about. And then we start beating ourselves up over them. Yeah, of course. I mean, I have that now worse with this, with doing this podcast, which, you know, with stand up. I, I, certainly I do it with stand-up and, and, and when I'm on comedy podcasts as well as, oh, I had this line, I could have said this, I didn't get that out. Certainly do that. But now, I've, like I, I said, the top of this is this podcast started with talking to comedians about mental health and I've been fortunate to get um, experts and doctors like yourself. And then I'm like, now I'm in this crazy depth and I'm like, I have access to this really um, brilliant mind for an hour. What if I don't get to anything? What if I don't have the questions? And so sometimes even during this interview, I have to use sort of my mindfulness techniques of like, okay, just relax. It just listen, whatever happens will happen. I'm like, I have a page full of notes with all these thoughts and I don't want to look at them because I'm, I'm talking to you and I'm, I'm already down the road going, oh my God, I'm going to ruin this whole thing. Um, so, yeah, I definitely um, 
relate to that. And I have to have that practice of like, well, whatever it is, that's what it'll it'll be. And trying to let go of what everybody's going to think or saying he should have said this or that. And it's a lot of um, letting go. And also what really does help me is this mantra, and this comes from my therapist as well, just saying, it's just anxiety. That's just anxiety. My, my thoughts are not reality and fear is just fear. And I have these little mantras of, it, it's just anxiety. Just don't worry about it. Re- just relax. It's going fine. Who cares? We're, and then I also will do worst case, worst case scenario, whatever. Uh, 7,000 people listen to me and go, this guy's an idiot. And it's like the worst case scenario. I love how you say, well, it's just anxiety. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about my work. (laughs) Um, But you're you're also highlighting what I I outline in this the scientific basic for basis for this third step in my book. So right, first step is map out the habit loop. Second step is start to see how unrewarding, say the worrying is, right? That opens up the space for what I call the BBO, the bigger, better offer. Okay. And in, in part three of the Unwinding Anxiety book, I highlight a bunch of different ways that people can do this. But you're, you're, you're showing some of the examples of this where if we can bring in an awareness of a thought, we can see it as a thought and we're not as attached to it. We don't take it as personally. And this even goes back, the analogy here is with physics, right? There, there's this thing that was called the observer effect. When they were trying to study the, uh, I think it was the, mass of the electron, if I remember correctly, they would have to hit it with photons. They'd have to hit it with lights to do the measurement. Yet that they, they found that that measuring itself affected the, the outcome. They call it the observer effect. By measuring, you're going to affect the result. We can actually apply this psychologically or think of it as, as a neuroscience hack where by observing, we're going to affect the results. So if we are totally identified with a thought, so let's say one of my fists is a thought and the other hand, you know, wrapped over it is us, right? These thoughts yank us around if we're holding on to them, if we're identified, say, with anxiety or with worry or whatever, but simply by observing, oh, that's just anxiety. That provides the observer effect where you get perspective and that by observing, you can no longer by definition, be as identified with that thought. And that already provides some freedom, some literally some space. And the more we can do that, see, oh, there's a thought, there's an emotion, there's a body sensation, the more we can start to let go of these and see them as momentary phenomena that come and go. And one way I think of, uh, I talk, I write about this uh, a lot in the book, I think of curiosity as a superpower, right? Right. So you, we can think of curiosity as that WD-40, as that thing that can help get any of these, these uh, attachment nuts unstuck, where you know, it provides that lubricant to help us see, oh, I'm not my thought, I'm not my emotions, I'm not my body sensations. Because curiosity itself has two characteristics. One, it feels better than anxiety. So our brain is going to naturally go toward it as a bigger, better offer, because it's going to say, given a choice between anxiety and curiosity, I'd take curiosity, right? So it's already a bigger, better offer for our brain. And it feels different. Anxiety feels closed down and contracted. Curiosity feels it opens us up and you can't be closed and open at the same time. So, you know, binary opposites, you bring in something that's not only more rewarding, but already is moving us in the direction of opening up. Yeah. So this is interesting because this sounds a lot and I might have misunderstood because I just read a piece of your book that maybe I misunderstood, but this sounds an awful lot like 
like mindful, basically mindfulness and a lot of what uh, meditate. I use Sam, obviously, you know, Sam Harris and I use his app and his meditation app has been hugely helpful as well as therapy and notice it. And my therapist, we kind of go over um, and I'd like to get into this a little bit too, but like not just where some of these come from. Like some of it is, I feel like learned behavior. At least my therapist believes that, that my, my yes. mother's got huge anxiety. My father's got anxiety. So um, like keeping that in mind, like I'm going to go off to side for just a second and come back to your book. But I remember going, to, I planned a trip to Paris with my wife and I've had so many trips where I just was anxiety. I always kind of joke, I can go through my Instagram account and point at every photo and be like, I was obsessed with my tooth in this one. I was obsessed with kidney failure on this one or whatever. And I said to my therapist, what about if I, this trip I've been planning and I'm so excited about it. What if I get obsessed with something? And he said, just say, oh, that's my mom. That's my mother. Because uh, that's like I picked up this worry. That's what my mother does. She yeah. worries a, a trip away. So that, but again, that comes back to mindfulness of like, oh, this is my learned behavior. This is just my anxiety. But in your book, I was reading things, and again, I might have misunderstood these things that don't work. And you kind of mentioned mindfulness and um, um, John. Is it John Kabat-Zinn? Um, wherever you go, there you are. I think that's his name. Right? Yes. So then I started to get in my head. I'm like, no, don't tell me that doesn't work because that's how I feel like so much has helped. That's been the most helpful thing in my anxiety. So maybe you could um, talk about that a little bit. Mindfulness and the pluses and minuses, I guess, of it. Yeah. So the chapter of that book and you're highlighting, hopefully I won't have any review and regret over this. I highlight three or four strategies that don't work. And then I highlight a strategy that has been shown to work, which is mindfulness. <laughs> oh, okay. See, I did misunderstand. Well, sometimes, um, sometimes I, as I was reading it, I was like, it sounds like these are all very positive, everything he's saying. He's not really dismissing this. So I also should say I have my own little learning disabilities and I have to reread pages over and over again. So I'm glad it is an example of me just um, misunderstanding because as I was reading it, I was like, this doesn't quite compute because it feels like these are all positive things he's saying here. So mindfulness, yeah. mindfulness, good. Yes. Mindfulness. Good. And from a scientist, so it's, it's not just good enough to say that, you know, as a scientist, I want to make sure something's actually working. So sure. for example, <laughs> mindfulness, good. You know, I think I mentioned our, in our smoking study, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We could actually go in with an app-based mindfulness training for smoking. Uh, it's called craving to quit. Um, anybody can download these apps. Uh, we've, we could get a brain mechanism and show exactly how it was working in the brain and how that was affecting smoking. We, uh, I shouldn't say we, but Ashley Mason led a study at UCSF showing this app eat right now could get a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And then my, my lab itself specifically, we developed an app, same name as the book, you know, unwinding anxiety. And we studied it with first with anxious physicians. We got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. Then we did it with people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction in anxiety scores. And just to, just to kind of highlight how, uh, how effective this is, remember that number needed to treat I mentioned earlier where I have to treat you know five patients before one shows a significant benefit. So that was 5.15. The number needed to treat in this in this study was 1.6. So, you know, many fewer people need to try the treatment before uh, we see significant benefits. Yeah. So this all makes 
so much sense because it really was a, a matter of like, boy, I thought he's a mindfulness expert in talking about these things. And so this all makes a lot more sense to me now. So I apologize for uh, misunderstanding okay. Okay. and for a moment being like, oh my God, everything I know is wrong. I'm an idiot. He's a doctor and I'm listening to dumb, you know, Sam Harris. What does he know? Um, so all, all good. So mindfulness um, uh, is, is, is great. So, that, and that's the things I've been using. And I wanted to talk um, a little bit about like personal stuff. Where, where does like OCD come into this? Because it feels like OCD is an anxiety disorder as well. And I, I'm somebody that my therapist diagnosed me with this too, where I'm like, I don't wash my hands a bunch, but I have these blinks. I'll do like hard blinks or I'm flexing my arm a lot when I get anxious. And it feels involuntary is it involuntary is it just anxiety what is going on with nervous tics physical tics yes so yes it's both so both it's involuntary and it's learned so involuntary meaning you can blink your eyes when you want to but you don't always have to think to blink your eyes which is good because if we always had to remember to blink our eyes all of our eyes would dry out and we'd go blind right so uh, same for breathing right we can consciously take a deep breath but we don't have to remember to breathe, right? So that's a, that's a behavior that's really at, the, at, the, at our core you know, physiologic system that says, hey, you know, our brain, the basic parts of our brain say, I'm going to take care of this for you so you can think and, and learn other things. Because if, if we had to think about everything we do, we wouldn't survive <laughs> more than a couple of minutes probably. Oh, I forgot to breathe. Oh, you know, that's it. Right. Uh, so... So the involuntary piece is true in terms of these, you know, say blinking, and these can be learned behaviors. So if we learn to associate certain behaviors with, uh, with rewards, for example, with OCD, uh, then we're, we can repeat those things over and over. I love, so uh, B.F. Skinner was this famous behaviorist uh, where he studied pigeons back in the 50s. <clears throat> some people love what Skinner did. Some other people think, oh, he's, you know, he's terrible. He, he thinks that we're all robots. Uh, so, but one thing that he highlighted that is still true to this day, he would give lectures about operant conditioning, this positive and negative reinforcement piece that I'm talking about. He'd give lectures where he'd bring a pigeon on stage and he would randomly feed it. So this pigeon would be in a closed, in a covered cage. The pigeon couldn't see what was happening. Yet randomly, he would just feed the pigeon as he was giving his lecture. And by the end of the lecture, he would say, "Okay, watch this. Legion, this pigeon is now going to have do a bunch of different behaviors to get this food." And so he'd pull off the, you know, reveal the pigeon at the end of the lecture. He'd hold up the food, and then the pigeon would do all of these random behaviors, thinking that, oh, it's because I did this behavior, I got this food where it was just random, where he was just randomly feeding it. But whatever it did right before it got the food, it learned to associate that with getting with a reward. So it learned over the course of an hour to do all these things. Well, whether it's eye blinks or extensive rituals with OCD, I remember going to a home visit when I was in residency where there was a woman in her 20s who had such extensive OCD, she couldn't leave a single uh, room. She couldn't even go to the bathroom. And so she was using adult diapers. It was, it was really a, a sad case where she had learned all of these rituals to alleviate her anxiety. And every time she broke the ritual, didn't follow it perfectly, 
she would get anxious, which would pri- uh, prime her to go and start it all over again to the point where she'd spend hours just repeating these rituals over and over and over and over. And every time she did that, it would reinforce the behavior. So fortunately, most of us do not have severe OCD, but whether it's verbal tics or blinking our eyes or all sorts of you know biting our nails, these are all along that spectrum of this learned behavior where OCD is that extreme end of it. Right. Interesting. I see. I have to, I I'll start doing these things and beat myself up where I'm doing these hard blink things that somehow start happening when I get anxious, particularly on podcasts. And I'm like, Oh my God, everyone's going to notice I'm a piece, I'm a piece of shit. I have anxiety and people are going to say, what's the deal with this. And then the more I think about it, the more it happens. And, and I've come so far with anxiety and panic, like, and even hypochondria where I'm like, I feel like I can't even like recognize myself as opposed to five, 10 years ago through therapy and my uh, recovery program from alcoholism and, and meditation, which all are very similar, all in, involve acceptance and, and, and that kind of um, thing. But then there's always still something. I'm still worried about this or I still have little uh, like relapses of hypochondria or these nervous tics. And it goes back to acceptance in some way that I have to be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm never going to be a Buddhist monk, a Tibetan monk or something that just is, is Zen all the time, which I, people have pointed out that even that doesn't exist. Even that's an illusion that, um, so I forget what I was getting at, but this idea of I'm always going to deal with some amount of problem, even if I read your book and, and meditate the rest of my life, I'm still going to have some amount of anxiety and and you want to have anxiety right as a survival mechanism to some degree well no (laughs) damn it (laughs) (laughs) but what so these survival mechanisms trip into anxiety so we do want to have these survival mechanisms yes yet when they trip into anxiety it's never been shown to be helpful and i actually wrote a whole section in the unwinding anxiety book about performance anxiety because there's this misconception this association between being anxious and performing well, which is along the spectrum of OCD, right? If I'm not anxious, I don't perform well. So no evidence to show that that exists. There are all the, you know, for folks that are interested in the details, they can read about that. But the basic idea here is when there's, so think of it as when we don't have food, we get a rumbling in our stomach that says, go get some food. Okay, so there's this survival strategy that our brain set up, which it drives us to go get food. So we get off the couch, we go get some food. Well, you can think of that rumbling in the brain coming from a lack of information, from uncertainty. So ancient ancestors out on the savannah, if they were mapping out a new territory looking for food and they didn't know that there was danger, it would prime them to be on high alert to look for danger, right? And it didn't matter if there was or wasn't danger there. What mattered was that they learned to map out the territory. So if there wasn't danger there over and over, that could, they could map that out. They could become certain that it was safe. If there was danger there consistently, they could map that out and say, avoid that. Right. So that, that survival mechanism is helpful. The problem is when we don't have enough information and our brain is just constantly looking for more and more and more, then it starts spinning out into these, what if scenarios, what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that, And that doesn't actually help us think and plan. So this thinking and planning part of our brain where it says, oh, you know, this part of the Savannah was safe yesterday and it was the day before and all that, I can go back there. It's like, well, maybe maybe this time or or whatever, we spin out into anxiety. And ironically, anxiety makes the thinking and planning part of our brain go offline. 
So it doesn't actually help us survive. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the performance thing, I'm like, people. I've talked to friends who are, are angry or anxious and they say, well, I'm afraid if I go to therapy and if I cure this, I won't be funny anymore. And and I've had that thought, too, of like, wow, man, what if I just zen myself to death and I can't come up with jokes anymore? But in reality, my anxiety is the thing that's hurt me and hindered me most in my career creatively is I wanted yeah. to do all these things. And everything I've managed to accomplish, which is a, a good amount, uh, I'll email you my resume after, but uh, mm -hmm. I, it, it's all in spite of anxiety. And if I had just been clear, I mean, I can't write jokes when I'm having an anxiety attack or exactly. I don't even want to perform. Your brain's not in the mode to be able to do any of those things when you're anxious. Yeah, it's closed down. It's running, it's running for the safety of the cave. Right, exactly. And interestingly, I've had panic on stage and, and, and we got to wrap up in a moment here, but maybe you could kind of speak briefly to the science of this where I've had back a few years ago, panic attacks while performing one, even on television, I was having an anxiety attack. And what helps me is to get away from my act that I know this sort of a routine, as they would say, and go into, I would start doing crowd work. I would say, hey, what, what's going on over here? What do you do? And that would actually help settle me because it kind of brings me into the moment, ironically, is because I can do my act while being kind of like you were talking about. You can walk. You're not consciously walking a lot of the times. You're just walking because you know how to do it. Same with my act. I had it memorized. So I would have to step outside of my act and that would actually relieve me from anxiety. Yeah. So this gets at, you can think of the far end of the spectrum of, high high performance the the best performance is described as somebody being in flow and i'm sure you can think of times and shows you've done where you've just been totally in flow where it's 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 not even you doing anything it's just that it's happening it's unfolding right and we can look at this from a perspective of how contracted or closed down do we feel versus how open do we feel when we're anxious we feel closed down and contracted when we're in flow We've lost a boundary. This is a Mihai Csikszentmihalyi described this in the seventies. You know, it's, it's effortless. It's selfless. We don't even know where that boundary is between ourselves and the rest of the world because it's just stuff happening. But the other thing that Csikszentmihalyi talked about was the ways to get into flow or finding this sweet spot between having something that's too easy versus too hard. So if something's too hard, we're going we're gonna to be like, oh, this is tough. This is challenging. And we're going to trip up. We're going to get closed down in that. And, oh, I'm failing. I can't do this. If something's too easy, we go on autopilot. And I, that, I'm wondering if that's what you're describing. Whereas if you're just in the middle of your act and it's on autopilot, it frees your brain up to start spinning out in worry. Right. Whereas if you make it a little bit harder, he talks about this sweet spot where this in-between zone between something being too easy and too hard, he says, that's where you can find flow. So if you start doing crowd work, your brain has to get into gear where it says, you know, oh, this is challenging. I have to pay attention to this as compared to my anxiety. But if, if, if I tried to do crowd work, <laughs> I would get into the too hard zone and I would freak out because I'm not a comedian, right? So it's right. not just that anybody can go, oh, go do crowd work and you're going to relieve your anxiety. It's about <laughs> finding that sweet spot in what you can do well, but not so well that it's easy and you, you can do it on autopilot, but not so hard that it's, you know, it's like me trying to do standup. That would be a disaster. So that's that sweet spot. And it really comes back to 
you know, this piece around being closed down and contracted versus really being open up and expanded And the crowd work sounds like that helps open you up. I don't know if I'm on track there. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, and it takes you sort of in the moment and it is a little more challenging, but not impossible as, and like you said, I mean, that's an interesting thing that I always wonder if it's, it's always interesting to me to think of an audience of a couple hundred people watching a performance. And I think about this, if I go see, you know, the stones or a band, how many of them don't realize that for 45 minutes I'm telling jokes and doing well. And I'm thinking about something, you know, my wife said earlier, I'm thinking about, you know, the TV show I'm watching. And it's amazing that the brain is able to kind of do that is a, a performing. And sometimes similar to when you, sometimes you read a book and then you go, Jesus, I don't even remember what I just read the last three yeah. pages. Yeah. Same with sometimes performing is like, I don't even know how I got here. I'm just completely on autopilot thinking about whatever it is, which is again, the fast, the brain is obviously a, fascinating tool muscle whatever whatever it is um i don't i want to be mindful of your time i just wanted to ask real quick so we talk about mindfulness and and you've obviously studied meditation mindfulness what is your meditation if any practice look like now you're somebody that still meditates or is it just it's all in there and you don't need to anymore how does it work or look for you <laughs> well our brains are continually learning so i would say there are two components here one is a formal practice uh, and I used to go on month-long meditation retreats to really get into a place where I was not distracted and can really just explore my own mental habits. And, uh, you know, so that can be, you know, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes, whatever. But I find that all that combined with what I call short moments many times is really critical. And this even came from some of the research that we did where we found, for example, with people who are smoking, the formal meditation was helpful, but the informal practices were even more helpful. So if they're, if they're driving their car and they have a craving for a cigarette, they can't just pull over on the side of the highway and pull out their meditation cushion and start meditating. But they can start to recognize, oh, there's a thought, oh, there's a body sensation, oh, there's a feeling. And they can work with those in the moment while they're, you know, they can pay attention to those as they're paying attention to the road and, and they're driving. And they can learn to ride out these, these urges to act on a thought, to act on an emotion, to act on a body sensation. And the more people can learn to do these informal practices, the better they get. So I find that the combination of, a, of an informal plus a formal practice, you know, the informal being in the moments, you know, short moments, many times uh, throughout the day, plus, you know, having some, some extended period to really look at the mind is really helpful. Yeah, that's so helpful. I remember you saying, that. I don't know if it was on Sam or Dan's podcast, but I remember hearing that and really thinking that's great. And, and Sam Harris talks about that a lot of, after his formal 10 minute guided meditation, he'll say, do this, take moments like this, especially in periods of, um, of transition, when you go from reading to doing laundry or whatever, to kind of be mindful. And that's been really helpful. Um, Judd, I really appreciate it. First of all, I want to say as an American, I don't have health insurance, so I appreciate any kind of doctor that, that goes on and, and writes books and, and is a sort of a public figure with advice and thoughts and all these things. I'm really grateful for you to use it as a service. It's, it's uh, delightful. And the book has been great. And hearing you on Sam's podcast was extremely helpful to me too. So wanted to express gratitude. And I want to also tell everybody to get the book, Unwinding Anxiety. It's right here. And uh, let, let people know where they can uh, find you and everything. The, I have a website, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com, that has links to the book, uh, to the apps that I talked about, um, some free resources that we have as well. So that's probably the easiest way to find me. 
I'm also on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. I really uh, appreciate it. I'm grateful to you. And uh, hopefully, I think this will help somebody. It helped me for sure. So thank you. (laughs) It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.